0: Let's pray as we open up this word together. Uh, Dear Lord, we do thank you again for the fellowship that we share together. Uh, I pray as we open up your word now uh, that we will hear what you have to say to us. I pray that my words will be faithful to your word and that through your spirit you'll convict us of the things that we need to hear. Amen. I'm going to ask you to think about something in a moment and I want you to resist the temptation to say anything out loud. Okay, this is a in-your-head conversation. Okay, think of someone you really dislike or someone who really dislikes you. So it might be a work colleague uh, who's often nice to you when they want something, uh, but behind your back you know they're conniving and manipulative. Uh, They know that you are a Christian and they try to exploit that. And when you get it wrong, they're the first person to throw it back in your face. And this is not me. Perhaps it's your sister's passive aggressive husband. You know, the type of guy who always asks questions, but they're not really questions at all. They're more statements. So they ask you, you know, Why did you leave the steak and the sausages on the barbecue for so long? Uh, It's not really a question. It's a statement that, fair dinkum, mate, you've got no idea how to do a barbecue. But of course, it's not just about barbecues. It's kind of about everything. It's about every decision that you make. They're always there questioning it, making you feel stupid. Or perhaps it's your neighbour who takes a perverse pleasure in making your life more difficult. They put on the music at 11 o'clock at night or they throw rubbish on your lawn uh, or they've got a trailer and they park it so within a micro-millimeter of your driveway. And if you went and asked them you know, just ever so nicely if they wouldn't mind just moving it just a little bit, you know, they treat it as if it's an assault on their honour and it's pistols at dawn at 10 paces. Yeah, or maybe if you're younger, you're at school, uh, it's the bully. Uh, And even when you go home, they're still there because social media just never ends. And there's always a bit too much truth said in jest. And if you had the courage to ask them, you know, or tell them how you feel, they'd say something like, I'm only joking. Can't you take a joke? Uh, Or maybe it's not so much a person, but a group of people. Maybe it's the young blokes who hang out in the square that wear too much black, have too many tattoos, uh, are all attitude, they don't have a job, they don't particularly want a job, Uh, but they expect you to help them out. If you think about those people in your head, now think about some of the emotions that go with those people anger rage humiliation embarrassment betrayal loneliness contempt self-loathing hatred perhaps just an overwhelming feeling that you want revenge Now, all of those emotions flood up, don't they? Some of those situations are more serious than others. Some of those emotions are more powerful than others. But whatever the situation, Jesus calls his followers to be radically different to even the best of our culture. So let's uh, have a look at the context together to set a little bit of context for this particular passage. It's very similar but different to what we read in Matthew, which we know as the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, this one is called the Sermon on the Plain, just to avoid confusion. Uh, And we shouldn't be too surprised that as Jesus goes around preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, that he would say similar things on different occasions. And that's what he's doing here. So he's standing up again in front of a large crowd, proclaiming the word of the kingdom of God. And the message starts with a message of blessings and woes. So if we went uh, just a little bit earlier to what we read today, verse 22 sums it up quite nicely. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. And in contrast, we have the woes. So verse 26, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So to those who have suffered injustice, Jesus wants to say justice is coming. And for those who have perpetuated injustice, Jesus wants to warn them That judgment is coming. And so in that context, Jesus has started off talking about justice and then he goes on to talk about mercy. And so he's talking about those people who hate us. And so some of it is uh, those people who hate us for being Christians, uh, but it's broader than that. It's how do we live as Christians in every situation of life? So how do we respond to those people who hate us for being Christian? And how do we respond to people who just hate us for being us? And Jesus' answer is, love your enemies. So verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. It would be a difficult passage, wouldn't it? If I was standing up and saying today, I want you to not seek revenge uh, on people who hate you, or not seek justice, that would be a tough message to preach. If I was to stand up today and say, when people hate you, uh, as Jesus calls us, to forgive those people, that would be a tough message. But this passage goes even further still. Not only are we to love the people who hate us, be willing to forgive the people who hate us, but actually desire their good. We should seek to bless those who curse us and pray for those who mistreat us. It's about going way beyond what is fair and reasonable and even just. And it takes us to a place of being genuinely and painfully sacrificial and gracious and merciful. It's about giving someone something they do not deserve with no expectation that you will get anything back. They're incredibly challenging words for anyone, aren't they? But particularly... If you are here today and you've been traumatised, deeply traumatised by someone in your life, I think if you're hearing these words from that position, then at at best they can seem unrealistic and at worst they can seem cruel. You know, not only have I had to experience the pain of what this person has inflicted on me, but now I'm struggling with the guilt of not loving them in return. And I think in that context, I can understand how you feel if that's been your experience. And I think there's a few things to say more broadly. Uh, Firstly, we know that God is merciful. This particular passage is encouraging us to recognise the mercy of God. But we've just read in an earlier passage that God is also just. And so God has placed in our society right authorities and government and powers to deal with injustice, to deal with when people break the law, there are consequences and there should be uh, consequences for our action. And at the same time, if you're in a situation where you've been in an emotionally abusive situation, Jesus is not calling you to stay in that situation, to remove yourself from that situation, but then work out what does reconciliation then look like. But as we also listen to what Jesus is saying about loving your enemies, we also have the opportunity to free ourselves from the power they have over us. Because when we hate our enemies, they have the power. But when we love our enemies, when we start to see ourselves not from our enemy's perspective, but from the perspective of God, then we start to free ourselves from the power they have over us. And we start to recognise the power of God. That by his Holy Spirit, he helps us to see that we are lovable and that we are loved. Not because we are good, but simply because we are God's good creation. And he is gracious. This passage is not an easy one. But if we continue to remain in our hurt and our hatred... We do not do ourselves or God any justice. So the first example we have is in verse 29. So have a look at it with me. Verse 29, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. Now again, this is not about physical violence. Uh, This is about public humiliation. So when someone slapped you on the cheek, they were humiliating you in front of everyone who was there. And when we're humiliated, our first reaction is to try to regain sort of power and value, isn't it? So either we say, I don't care, and we try to dismiss it and put on a brave face, uh, or our more natural reaction is we tend to want to fight back, don't we? We want to humiliate them back, and usually with interest. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you even more. And if we don't feel we can do it verbally, then the temptation, I think particularly for blokes, is to do it physically. But we've been humiliated and we want them to feel the same pain and we want to take back power. But Jesus calls us to turn the other cheek, to forsake our own rights, to forsake even our dignity, to show grace to someone else. The next example moves from an emotional cost to a financial cost. So verse 29, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. So not only are we to endure graciously the humiliation of those people who hate us, but we are called to bless and bless beyond what is reasonable. I think when I read uh, the translation for this passage in the NIV and almost any translation, uh, it sounds like taking is, the same, is taking by force or taking without permission. Uh, that's how I've, I've tended to read this passage. Uh, but when you look at the particular words that, that uh, Luke has chosen, uh, it's not so much taking by force. So a little later on in verse 30, he says, give to everyone who asks. And then further down in the passage... Taking is equated with lending. So it's not really talking about how we deal with people who steal from us. It doesn't preclude them. Uh, we should still be gracious to those who steal from us. But this particular passage is in the context of lending and, ta- and t- expecting something in return. So if someone asks you for $5, give them 10 and rather than asking for it back, just simply give it graciously, without any expectation of return. Uh, perhaps you're out uh, at a work lunch with a particularly frustrating work colleague, uh, someone who you find particularly difficult, and you know at the end of the meal, he says, "You know, "Can you shout me this one? I'll pick up the tab next time." And you kind of know that he's never going to pick up the tab you know that he's going to conveniently forget next time round. And the temptation in that situation is to not want to feel scammed, isn't it? But when that time comes, this passage calls us to not only be gracious now, but to be gracious then. And that guy may well feel he's got one over you. Uh, He may well feel that you are weak. But in fact, it takes an incredible strength and self-control to show grace and mercy, to be genuinely different from our world. Verse 31 uh, works as a link between what comes before and what comes after. Uh, It's most famously known as the golden rule. Uh, and usually, when people talk about the Golden Rule, they don't read what comes before, they don't read what comes after, they just read this particular verse, uh, which is a little fraught. But it says, Do to others as you would have them do to you. And when people quote this verse and the similar one, you know, love your neighbour as yourself, uh, they usually have in mind that the neighbour is quite nice and this will be a mutually beneficial. Relationship, that as I am good to you, as you are good to me, then it's all a win win situation. But this passage is talking about love your neighbour when you've got the neighbour from hell. That's what this passage is talking about. It's not at all about fairness, it's about being completely unfair to show grace and mercy. And isn't that actually what we all want? You know, think about, I think about me standing before God. One day I'm going to stand before the justice of God and he is going to see every thought of my heart, every action, everything exposed. And in that moment, I do not want justice. Because in that situation, how could I possibly stand? How could I possibly ever vaguely expect to be vindicated if it was a court of law you know they go through the evidence i'd be tried sentenced thrown in prison forever and that'd be before morning tea the reality of life is we actually don't want justice we want mercy and we see justice and mercy coming together most graphically when we look at jesus on the cross so God in his justice punishes sin. But God in his mercy chooses to allow his son to pay that price rather than us. And Jesus goes on to drive the point home in this next section where he looks at, here's a following Jesus' perspective in contrast to a worldly perspective, and in fact, the best of the worldly perspective. You read the worldly perspective and you think, even that doesn't look like our culture. But the worldly perspective says it's easier to love people when they love you. It's easy to do good to someone if you expect they're going to do good back, or to lend to someone if you are confident that you're going to get the money back. What does Jesus say? Even sinners... Lend to sinners. There's nothing particularly unique or special or good about that. That's just standard issue pagan society. But as Christians, we are called to be salt and light, to be distinctly different to even the best of our culture, to love our enemies, to do good to them. Lend without expecting to get anything in return, it's a tough ask, isn't it? It's daunting. When you think about your enemies back at the beginning of this passage, it feels overwhelming, doesn't it? When we look at verse 35 and 36, uh, Luke or Jesus gives us a rationale for why we should love our enemies. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Firstly, your reward will be great. So earlier in the passage, uh, the one I read just at the beginning, our reward is connected to our reward in heaven. That we look forward to a time when we will live in perfect relationship with the God who created us. No more sin, no more pain. That is a wonderful reward to look forward to. But even more significant than that reward is the expectation of who we now are as children of the Most High. We've been called to be something different. We've been created to be something different. We're no longer imitators of our old selves and our worldly selves. We are now imitators of God. And because we have the Holy Spirit, God is moulding us and shaping us to be more like him. We were created in God's image and through his spirit we are being restored into his image. That is who we are called to be. And at times it is painfully and frustratingly slow, isn't it? You know, you look at your own character and you feel it's like one step forward about five steps back. Occasionally you get a few more on that. uh, But it feels painfully slow at times. But bit by bit, uh, God is shaping us and moulding us to be more like him. And God's nature is to be merciful, even merciful to the wicked. And we are called to be merciful in the same way. So when people look at how we live, They should see the character of God. And again, if we want the ultimate example of someone loving their enemy, think about Jesus on the cross. So he's arrested, beaten, humiliated, lifted up on a cross in front of a mocking crowd. And what does he say? Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. And even when we fail that standard, and we are going to fail, we're not clearly not perfect, but even when we fail that standard, how we respond says something about our character. When we go and ask for forgiveness, when we repent, that says something about our character, says something about how God is shaping us to be. But it also places us in an incredibly vulnerable position, doesn't it? to go to someone who hates us and say, I'm sorry, and actually mean it. That's tough. So let me ask the question, what is your reputation? So if you are a Christian here today, how would people perceive you as you deal with conflict? So are you known as someone to be feared? You know, mess with a bull, you get the horns. Or are you, for those who like the show Survivor, outwit, outplay, outlast? A little less confrontational. You're happy to give a bit, but at the end of the day, it's still all about you. Or perhaps you just want what's fair. Not more, not less. If you took any of those approaches to life, our culture would commend you for it. That's what our culture does. Uh, And even fair, you go, well, that's that's a wonderful benchmark, isn't it? But Jesus calls us to go even further. And in fact, he calls us to make ourselves less, to humble ourselves, to show mercy and grace and generosity beyond what is reasonable or deserved. And there's a peace and a freedom in that. For a culture that talks a lot about rights, there is a real freedom in letting go of our rights and what we feel we deserve and to recognise God's grace to us and then live out the same grace to those who hate us. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Let me pray. Dear Lord, as we read your word today and we feel the weight of those words, uh, and it feels at times overwhelming and impossible, uh, but Lord, we know that you have given us your spirit. Uh, We know that you are shaping us to be more like you and that you have called us to be different to our culture, uh, that we might be salt and light. And so, Lord, I pray that you give us the conviction uh, and the will and the ability uh, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Amen.